Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is episode 15, recorded Thursday, May 31st, 2018. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Betrayal Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. In this episode, our sixth of the year, we are joined by Leah Eustace with Blue Canoe Philanthropy and Dr. Ron Strand and Larissa Grosh, both of whom are associates with Betrayal. Our topic is the device screen, our new campfire, telling our stories in the 21st century. Storytelling is at the heart of the human experience. Today, we tell our stories with social media, live video, and with devices we hold in our hands. We are told by some that if it is not digital, it is not going to be seen or heard. Is this true? What does storytelling look like in 2020? We have three terrific guests with us today, all leaders in the sector and all expert storytellers. Join us as we discuss how much has changed in how we tell our stories and how much has not. All this and more coming up next on Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. Joining us from here in Calgary, we have Dr. Ron Strand. Ron has had a long and illustrious career as a fundraiser and as a fundraising consultant. I first met Ron about 15 years ago when he was consulting for us at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Since then, we've helped each other with various projects and clients. Ron joined us as a member of our team here at Betrayal just over a year ago. We are very lucky to have him on our team. Ron, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Folks, we're going to hear much more about Ron's thoughts on storytelling later in the podcast. But before we do that, I want to share with you some very cool things about Ron. First, he has his doctorate in education. Second, he has over 65,000 Twitter followers. Wow. And finally, what many people don't know about Ron is that he's also an artist and a craftsman. He still paints. And he used to carve, I think, I think he used to carve bird hunting decoys out of wood. And in just the last few weeks, Ron took an even large, took on an even larger challenge. Uh, Ron, I wonder if you can take a few minutes and tell us about what you built for your granddaughter last week. Uh, sure. Over the long weekend in May, I built a multi-level, multi-purpose treehouse fort, which was a lot of fun. Um, at first, I thought my granddaughter had uh, too grandiose an idea to uh, be able to pull it off. Um, but uh, following her uh, original vision, I managed to build something that um, was uh, quite functional, safe, and uh, yet still quite high. And uh, as I mentioned, multi-level. So you get to the first level via the tree and then to the second level via a ladder through a trap door and uh it was a lot of uh, a lot of fun <laughs> is there a sign that says no boys allowed uh not yet but i think that's part of the plan <laughs> thanks ron i think we all wanted to build a treehouse i i always wanted one thanks also joining us this morning from ottawa ottawa leah Eustace. Uh, Leah and I have worked together and become friends, mostly on projects related to the Association of Fundraising Professionals and the AFP Canada Foundation for Philanthropy. Leah was the board chair of the AFP Canada Foundation when I joined as a board member a few years ago, and I don't mind saying it, she was one of the main reasons I said yes. We have tried to have Leah on our podcast uh, for a while now, but things haven't worked out, but we are so glad that you're able to join us today. Leah, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I was just waiting for the perfect topic. This is it. (laughs) Awesome. Leah, you speak at lots of conferences. I have been in a number of your sessions, and I am constantly amazed at how you're able to engage so quickly and so completely with your audience. I I really, I want to be just like you someday. What's your secret? Uh, How are you able to get a group of adults to, to engage like you do in, you know, an hour, an hour and a half? What's, what's your secret sauce at the conference? I'm, I'm working really hard on being myself and being really authentic. And um, uh, most of the time that works out really well. Sometimes I shock people a little bit at how transparent I am. But 
you know, that's me. So they have to live with it, and usually it works out. Well, that's great. But you have some techniques and tools. Like, you don't always walk in with a PowerPoint and lecture. In fact, you never do that. Um, you know, I, 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 yeah. I've seen you really facilitate people and get a lot done in a very short period of time. I was even even with our professional meetings, like in um, in, uh, in New Orleans, uh, you, you know, we had a very, it was breakfast time, and you got a lot of information flowing just through some expert facilitation. So it's a skill. Um, well, and I'm constantly... That, was, that one was more arts and crafts. Arts and crafts <laughs> always work. You throw that oh, is, that the, is that is that the trick? Yeah, so it's bring construction paper, markers, and yeah, it's going to be a good Okay, thing. so channel your inner child. And exactly. you will be engaged adults. Okay. Perfect. That's what I'm taking out of this. Thank you. Um, our third panelist is my friend and colleague, Larissa Grosh. Uh, Larissa is a consultant with Ron and I at Betrayal. I have known Larissa ever since I came to Calgary in 2005, but it is only since we formed the company, Betrayal, in 2015 that we've had a chance to work together. So, Larissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Larissa is a woman of many talents. You are a woman of many talents, Larissa. She, you're, a, you're a treasure as one of our consultants. Uh, you're an amazing mother to two wonderful children, and you continue to explore and develop your skills as, as a dancer, as a Ukrainian dancer. Um, Larissa, you and your husband, Paul, and your children just got back from Vietnam, I think, in Thailand. I'm wondering if you can tell us what inspired that trip and what was your biggest learning? Yeah, certainly. So it's always been on my bucket list to have an extended um, holiday with my family. I think that's something that's um, quite important and something to do while the kids are still young and, and interested and able to do that. And it was um, organized tours through both countries. Um, so that was um, a relief not to have the pressure of um, having the responsibility of always kind of figuring things out. And it was quite a eye-opening and heart-opening experience, which is how I talk about it. And um we're very grateful that we have the opportunity to do that and, and look forward to traveling more in the future that way. You said heart opening. What do you mean by that? Um, I think anytime you go to a different culture and have a chance to experience that and see things through a different lens, it, it, you know, blows things up and it, and it changes your perspective on things. And, you know, going to a developing country, which both are, um, incredible experiences, incredible people and, and really um, brings, I think, perspective to your values and um, how you see the world. So that's why I say eye-opening, but also heart-opening, because I think it, it really um, uh, enriches your humanity, I think. And reminds us of how lucky we are to live where we do. Indeed. So that's, that's cool. Thanks, Larissa. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our 15th podcast. Today's topic is the device screen our new campfire, telling our stories in the 21st century. Storytelling is at the heart of the human experience. We are social beings by nature, and stories are an important way we like to share information, hand down knowledge, and interact with each other. Before the written word, stories were spoken to each other and to groups around, around bonfires. Sometimes these stories were captured as paintings on a cave wall or as murals on our churches and in our arenas. With the invention of the printing press, a new tool was added to the repertoire of the storyteller. Some lamented the diminishment of the art of the spoken word. Then came the moving picture, television, and video, more snipping, this time about the downgrading of the purely written narrative. Today we have social media, live video, and a device screen in the hands of many. Trend watchers tell us that if our stories are not shared in a digital format, they are not going to be heard. Is print dead? Is narrative passe? What does a great story look like in 2020? What tools does a 21st century storyteller need to be, need to have to be considered successful? Ron, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? Uh, wow. That's a lot. You covered a lot of ground in a few sentences. Uh, the whole Yeah, sorry about of, that. Uh, that's the, that's the extrovert in me. I've got three strong introverts on the, on the panel, but, uh, I'm looking forward. The, the history of civilization. Um, I guess coming back to the original question of whether or not uh, the uh, device screen is the new campfire, uh, as I was listening to your uh, review of the last 500 years or so since the printing press was uh, invented, uh, 
my thoughts were that when a new media medium comes along, the uh, previous media aren't necessarily uh, abandoned. Everything that's developed, every new technology builds on the past. And so we're still using the printed word, even though we now have electronics. Um, we're uh, still reading, even though we can listen more with video and watch more with video. Uh, and we're still sitting around campfires telling stories. Uh, a lot of people uh, still do that. So... Um, it becomes a more diverse uh, arena of communication. Um, and um, as such, uh, we tend, we meaning people in general, tend not to uh, specialize, but move kind of seamlessly from one medium to another uh, in, as we uh, hear stories, read stories, uh, consume stories. Um, Another point that came to mind, and I don't want to take up too much time away from the other people on the panel, but um, is the uh, Canadian communication theorist, Harold Innes, uh, had this theory of um, some communications being time-binding, some communications being space-binding. And by time-binding communications, he meant the intergenerational wisdom uh, that was transferred. And I think when we think of stories being told around a campfire, uh, I thought of um, Innes' uh, theory of time-binding communication, where oral traditions would get passed on and refined and uh, become very elegant stories over time. Uh, Space-binding communication, on the other hand, tends to... Uh, negate space, negate time, it's instant, it's global, um, but it doesn't have the same impact and transfer the same wisdom that time-binding communication does. And so um, the device screen, which tends to be space-binding, um, is very different in that way from the oral traditions that tend to be time-binding, the stories told around the campfire. So a couple of thoughts that came to mind um, as I mulled over the original question. I knew you'd start there. That's awesome. Who wants to weigh in on that? Well, you know, I I think, Ron, that um, I totally agree with, with everything you've said. I, you know, digital is just, just another tool at our disposal. And certainly it doesn't diminish all the different other tools we have for telling our stories. It may, it may, uh, slightly change the way we need to tell stories, but storytelling is never going to go away. It's never going to be, uh, you know, conversational storytelling will never be replaced by digital storytelling. It's just all more mediums by which to tell those stories. Um, you know, and maybe it, it, the difference I see with digital and certainly I observe this with my two teenagers is um, how, how quickly a story needs to capture people's attention when it's told digitally, uh, it, you know, super quickly. There, I read a study recently, um, and one of you may know where I read this. Uh, I don't remember, but um, that that young people are are losing their attention span. So. Um, they're actually finding that young people have a really difficult time picking up a novel and reading it for an hour or two. Um, it's starting to happen to adults as well. So, uh, you know, that's a concern, and it doesn't mean storytelling is any less powerful. It just means that um, it's really important to kind of go in, go in quick, go in quick with an emotional hook and, and capture people's attention. It's, it's changing. It's not going away. Right. I, uh, there's a lot in there that's interesting, even the whole topic of um, the diminished attention, which I, I think I'd like to circle back. Um, Marissa, did you want to weigh in before we dig into some of these other topics? Well, yeah, I was just going to comment, you know, there's, there's studies that have been done that, you know, storytelling, especially digital, you have about six seconds. It, it's that to, to 
capture people's attention. And so, you know, when there are so many different mediums, how do you do that? And, and you know, part of, you know, what we'll talk about at something here, I'm thinking as audience as well, right? So who are your donors and who are you telling the story to and what's the best medium to, um, to get through that? Well, that's a good, that's a good leaping off point, actually, Larissa. I'm wondering if we could actually, um, take a, a little, um, uh, uh, leap towards that around, uh, th- 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 does your audience determine your medium today in storytelling? I think it can, but it, it, um, doesn't, it, it, you sometimes have to challenge assumptions about how to reach them. So, for example, if we're talking about millennials, you know, what you're going to do digitally, um, doesn't preclude that you know, some of the um, baby boomers may not also be involved digitally and, and uh, engaged in Twitter or Facebook or other things. So I think you can um, have certain assumptions that um, build into which audience you're talking about and that, but um, it doesn't preclude. Right. What are your thoughts on that, Leah, Ron? I think that it's necessary to tell the same story a variety of different ways to adapt whatever your story is to the uh, medium that you're using and uh, also uh, some stories lend themselves uh, more to uh, visual representation uh, to charts and graphs to uh, uh, people's faces um, all of those different kinds of things and uh, it's important to adapt um to the medium, but also to the story and kind of match the two, if that makes sense. Is that the secret sauce, matching those two? Uh, I don't, I'm not sure if there is a secret sauce. I think that um, it's, uh, you have to match them, you have to match your audience, uh, you have to do a whole bunch of things. And, and maybe sauce is a good metaphor because usually sauce isn't, uh, just a few ingredients. A good sauce is a, a variety of ingredients with um, lots of depth of flavors. And so right. I think that's true with uh, stories as well, that uh, you look at um, a variety of things and uh, in some media, they some ingredients will rise to the surface and, and be more prominent and in other media, it will be different ingredients that come to the surface. I um, I want to put a pin in an idea I was thinking about while you were talking. Uh, you and I had a chance to work with the St. Albert Food Bank and help develop their their preliminary case for testing in the marketplace. I um, I'm wondering if you if you wanted to, to to talk about that now or later. I'll leave that up to you. But the the, the way that we approached that was rather different than what they were expecting. Uh, sure, I can talk about that now. If uh, <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah, what we did was, um, and I got the idea when I toured the food bank with the executive director, and uh, it really changed my mind and thinking about what a food bank does because they, uh, as we walked around and as she talked, um, there's a lot going on in terms of the food bank being a hub of of activity uh, and a variety of programs in addition to the distribution of food for people in need. And so I decided, rather than writing a, a typical case, that I would illustrate it um, with uh, comic strip style illustrations. Graphic and, novel. Uh, yeah, graphic novel. Um, it's I don't really like the term comic strip and I don't really like the term graphic novel uh, because comic strip, people assume you're talking about something funny and graphic novel, often people's minds go to like true crime stories and that kind of thing that are kind of gruesome. Um, so it's somewhere in between. Um, it's um, uh, not intended to be funny, but it is intended to be more lighthearted. Um than um, a typical case, and it provided the opportunity for uh, showing different aspects of what the organization did in a very uh, brief way, 
that someone could read in a few minutes uh, that uh, perhaps have more impact than the words themselves. Uh, one thing I like about comic strips or graphic novel format, too, is that um, uh, there's been research that uh, shows that people interpret the balloon in a comic strip much like uh, spoken word, uh, which is really interesting because, of course, you're reading it, but yet your brain is thinking of it as somebody talking to you. Uh, so it has a different impact than uh, reading text on a page without illustrations. Um, it's a great story. I, I love that we did that. Yeah, I did too. I, I enjoyed doing it, and um, I think they enjoyed <laughs> uh, reading it. And uh, we we haven't got a lot of feedback on it yet, but we'll uh, we'll find out as we go along. Exactly. Leah, we, uh, I didn't get around to you to talk about audience, and you don't need to talk about audience, but if you wanted to, you could, and then, uh, and then, uh, any other thoughts you have on what we've been talking about? Yeah, you know, I think I just had a bit of an aha moment while we were talking. Um, and, you know, this, everyone else may have had this aha moment years ago, but, um, if we're talking about kind of the evolution of storytelling. You know, storytelling's always been a part of of being a human, verbal storytelling goes back, what, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, but if you look at the evolution, so, you know, verbal storytelling, we've been doing that forever. That comes naturally. It, we don't even think about it. It's just we, we, everything goes through our brain and turns into story. Uh, written storytelling is much more recent. Um, but then if you start to think about visual storytelling, that's even more recent. Um, and... I'm see, you know, I'm, as I'm listening, and especially that story you just told, Ron, about really that, you know, that it, it, visual storytelling with with a combination of words, and um, I, I think this is where we kind of need to start practicing our artist storytelling in um, in visual ways. You know, how does a photograph, our use of a photograph, tell a story? Uh, how does um, the placement of words and the colors and texture and everything else all play a role. And I, I do, I write a lot of cases for support. And over the last, even just six months, maybe eight months, I've, I've started to always insist that I'm not just writing copy. Um, visual storytelling is as much a part of a case for support as are the words. And they have to walk hand in hand right from the very first step. Um, and I think, you know, in, term, in terms of audience, well, yeah, yeah, I think different mediums maybe appeal to slightly different audiences or demographics, but, um, but we all react, we all react to visuals in the same way we react, we react to words in that a story gets created in our head very quickly. Um, but it, it just occurred to me that, you know, that we're, we're kind of, taught at the toddler stage of visual storytelling, whereas we're with verbal storytelling, we you know, we're 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 ancient wizards at that. Right. I um I think of some of the most powerful cases I've ever seen, um, and some of them have been uh, you know, a black and white photograph with a single word on them. Yeah. Because uh, there's there's an there's an emotional um, aspect it's a it's the photography that you can capture very quickly you know literally a picture is worth a thousand words in that instance so yeah, and I, th I think too often we don't pay enough attention to the visual impact uh, it's no. just kind of thrown in at the last minute and actually detract from right the telling of the story rather than contribute and it really is an integral part to telling stories well, I feel like back to uh, both the point that you and Larissa and, and to some degree Ron made about the, the, the fact that in a digital world, you have to capture them quickly to keep them. Um, uh, and if you look at, uh, I think fundraising, from my perspective, could learn a lot from marketing, um, like the, the big marketing world where, you know, when they when they look at digital marketing, their, their stuff has an emotional appeal immediately, maybe with that two or three words, and then, you know, they can draw you in for the longer story. Because if they can't capture you, can't do that. Um, so I think that's interesting, and that comes a little bit back. I want to talk a little bit about. Um, I didn't think we'd go down this pathway, but I saw some research related to this around: Are we, as a 
of a species actually evolving to be more ADHD. And is that why our, 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 the, is the media driving us or are we adapting to that or, you know, what's the story? They say that some of the kids today and, and adults, as you've mentioned, who have uh, a stronger tendency towards um, uh, attention deficits, it actually could be an evolutionary skill in terms of absorbing knowledge. Any thoughts on that? I've stunned the audience. I know. I, I, I think. I think that's true. I think that's absolutely true. And for some reason, this pops in my head. The the most recent Olympics. Um, I don't know about the rest of you, but I love watching the Olympics. Um, and when the ads come on during the Olympics, they are so different from ads of years ago. Like they, I find them almost painful to watch because they're just. Music, noise, images, just uh, confronting you, and it, you know, I, I feel, I turn away. My kids, you feel are assaulted. Hooked. I do. I feel assaulted, and my, but my kids are hooked. That's this is how they receive information, and for me, it's completely overwhelming. Um, so I think that kind of speaks to that whole uh, ADHD thing. That you know, it's I can see it in my children. Um, I can see it in, you know, their difficulty in sitting down with a good novel. Um, I, I kind of, um, it, it makes me very sad, but uh, I think it's a fact of life that we have to accept. Right. Well, what do you I think? Would, what do I you would, think, Larissa? I would, yeah, I would comment. I think, I think there, I think there's aspects of that that's true. That there is just more of everything, you know, more advertising, more um, ways that people are trying to grab your attention. But I think the, the skill and, you know, where, you know, if you bring it back to storytelling though is, you know, what is the, what is the hook and how can we start from a really simple place and get really clear on what it is that we need to tell people and, um, and, you know, get their interest and, you know, we in fundraising try to plan that, but sometimes it also is unplanned. You know, I, you know, you think of Humboldt and how much money they raised and that was all, um, not for tax receipts, but because people were drawn, they connected to, you know, that incident, they can imagine themselves in that, um, in that place. So, you know, I think there, there is a lot of, um, noise out there. Um, and I think our job is to try and be sort of the, the strategist that helps to figure out, um, you know, why should this matter and, you know, how can I tell this story? Well, Larissa, I'm glad you picked up on that. Um, and because while, while Leah was talking about the Olympics, she, she kind of, you had kind of a bit of a throwaway comment that was, I just love the Olympics. Um, and I think a lot of people love the Olympics. And if you think about our topic and the Olympics, I think there's something related to that. Because we put our, for me, I'll just speak for me, I put myself in the story. I, I, I can't run that fast. I can't jump that high. I can't swim that far. I can't get that level of physical achievement. But through them, through their story, through my imagining uh, how, how that's the powerful hook for me is that I'm in that story. And I think that's related to the Humboldt story too, is that there is a story there and we put ourselves in it and that's powerful. And sometimes and I think we forget that. How, how do we, how do we, how do we as fundraisers, how do we, how do we remember to put our, put our donors into the story? And that goes to the single most important, you know, magical word that you can ever use, which is you, right? And, that, that, that's why we tell stories is because we, you know, they connect us. They, you know, blow our minds. They, you know, pull at our heartstrings. And, um, you know, getting to the you is, is our, you know, honor and responsibility as fundraisers is to get people to understand why should they support this cause and why is this really important. Mm-hmm. I cry uh, watching the Olympics. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it, it all comes back to relatable characters uh, and how important that is. And we can see that in the Olympics. Um, the stories are very relatable. And if you think about, you know, anyone who's ever done any fundraising or consulting or supportive of hospital foundations, for example, we know that telling the story of um, someone who is battling cancer is much more relatable than telling the story of 
someone who has a disease that only affects 100 people in Canada and, uh, and, you know, nobody knows someone with that disease, whereas mm-hmm. cancer has touched all of us. So telling those relatable stories, we see the impact. Um, more dollars raised, more donor engagement because they can put themselves in that story. I take it a step further. The research I've seen um, says that uh, if you just use the words like help us cure cancer, that's nowhere near as possible, as powerful as, as saying Mary has cancer. Mary shouldn't have cancer. You know, that bringing it right down to a person um, is, is, uh, is, is, is much more relatable in terms of people um, making gifts um, as opposed to saying helping the poor identify Harry, the homeless man, right? I'm saying right as a question. Push back on me. <laughs> you are well, right. certainly. I think there's. A, I, I think there's a lot of evidence for that idea of you know I can't I can't help solve you know world poverty, but I can help that particular person and and you know describing how you can make an impact. Um, you know what that looks like. Um, that was part of you know I, I've come back now. I'm working, one of the clients that we're working with is is trying to address the you know um, potable water situation in, in the world and having been, you know, in a developing country that where that was an issue, like it it just I it went from intellectualizing it, you know, something really personal. I had to drink bottled water for a month because there didn't have clean water there. And so all of a sudden this organization that I knew about before is is definitely meaningful to me. Um and that's again that's kind of our, our purpose. And um so how do we how do we spread that message? How do we tell the story? How do we you know what what platforms can we use it? And I, I think a comment that was made earlier, um on is telling the story, but in, in different ways, and, and mediums is really important because that goes back again to the, the noise. There's so much clutter. So, how many times do we need to hear the message before we can um, respond to it? Ron, you should tell the story about that's a little bit related to the organization that Marissa's talking about. Your background research did, didn't you sign up for some of these large water organizations, and you were amazed, I think, at, at some of the things and how they engaged you. Uh, yeah, that's right. I signed up for newsletters and uh, followed them on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, generally, this is um, just based on observation. I haven't kept track of any statistics, but I would say those who are raising the most money are the ones that are dominating the social media space. Uh, and what I mean by that is they're providing um, numerous uh, images and stories daily, a huge amount of content. And the ones that aren't raising as much money, um, are sending out, uh, more traditional material in much less frequent, um, uh, intervals and, uh, much less quantity. And, uh, it would be interesting to sit down and actually do some some counts and quantify that and see if there is a correlation between the amount of material uh, content that's being produced and the amount of money that's being raised. Uh, one thing, of course, too, um, as people, are, um, as organizations, I should say, get bigger, uh, they have more resources and they can hire more people to crank out more content, which helps them get raise more money, which helps them get bigger. And so... Um, it becomes increasingly difficult for smaller organizations that don't have the resources uh, to produce that much content to um, uh, stand up and stand out in that space. Right. Now, Ron, you, just to be clear, and so people who are listening to the podcast uh, don't take this out of context, uh, uh, this, that comment about... Um, uh, how the, how they were raising more money with more content was uh, was related to you know an international development charity. Um, uh, are you are you suggesting that that's applicable across the whole charitable sector? I didn't sense that you were, but I wanted to check. Not necessarily. Um, uh, I I have no way of verifying that. All, all I'm saying is the biggest organizations. Uh, big in terms of they're raising the most money or the ones producing the most content. Right. Um, Go ahead, Leah. I, Sorry, I'm Ron, I'm, I'm not trying to cut you off. 
That's there okay. There is something interesting there, though. I think there's something worth poking at. Maybe it's a topic for another podcast, but, you know, I, I, I'm working with an organization right now who is conducting um, a month-long Ramadan campaign and concerned that they're communicating too much. And mm. uh, I, I think it, you know, it. what you're saying, Ron, makes me think that, that how careful we have to be around our personal opinions and what we logically believe to be true and actual human behavior. So, um, you know, it may very well be true that the more we message and the more we're out there and the more that, um, that, you know, we're posting on social media, the more donations are coming in, even though if you ask some of those donors, they'd say, I get too much information. Um, so, so their behavior doesn't necessarily match what they say. Uh, you know, so that just started running through my mind. That would be an interesting thing to study, and maybe it has been studied, and I've not come across it yet. Mm-hmm. I love the fact that more and more, as a profession, we are gravitating towards evidence as opposed to handed-down knowledge. So it, that question comes up. I, I don't think any of us know exactly the answer, but it'd be a great thing to explore and actually follow through on, because I feel like in my professional career, and I'm sure some of you feel this too, is that either ourselves or the organization we work with, they have beliefs uh, about things that may or may not be helping them fundraise. And what one of them is uh, our folks are contacted too much, uh, which may be true, uh, but it might not be true. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead, Ron. Go ahead, Ron. Ron, go ahead, please. I'll bring Alyssa back. Uh, no, that's fine. I was just agreeing with you. Oh, okay, Go good. Ahead. <laughs> okay, that's 30 seconds. I don't get back. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. I can, uh, I can fix that and post easily. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, Larissa, um, what were you saying? At some point, I was hoping at some point to bring up, I attended a um, uh, luncheon recently with the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and it was on direct marketing, but what was presented was a study that was done through Canada Post, um, and it was on the science of activation and on how um, direct mail isn't dead. And uh, and it just had some interesting um, uh, like scientific findings on neuromarketing. And, and so I think that relates to this idea of storytelling and screen devices and um, that sort of thing. I'm happy to share the link um, after this with our, with our audience. Because um, I think it is important that it is evidence-based as well that, you know, there, there are you know, when you do an integrated fundraising campaign and you have a different email, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, like all those different platforms where you're trying to share your message to your website, um, this study was interesting because it found there is um, different um, effects based on the sequencing of how you, you know, deliver out messages. So, you know, I think we as practitioners need to try and stay on top of that kind of um, information, but it is um, evidence-based, the work that we're doing, and not just based on um, sort of assumptions or, or guesses. Exactly. I, um, I I would love to share that link out there. So thank you for that, uh, Larissa. I, um, I I I just I find it interesting. I spoke to a bunch of millennials. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm using that term to folks who were in their 30s um, uh, uh, about another topic, but related to direct response. And they all worked for agencies, big agencies that were involved in this on fundraising. And and so I asked the question about it was kind of a, a side conversation about uh, about 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 um, a mail, you know, uh, hard copy mail in the mailbox, and um, and they they said that actually it's interesting that um, if properly done with a with a uh, that, that their their demographic uh, doesn't get a lot of mail except for bills, and so uh, when they do get something that isn't a bill and is properly designed, as long as the activation was in a digital format, they were they they're more likely to explore it. So. It could be a print piece that caught their attention, but the, the way to donate was to go online or visit the website or something. I don't know if others have seen that, but that was just it was a small sample, not not uh, evidence-based uh, in the deep way, but interesting. You know, since I've seen that too, we did a number of years ago in uh, in Ottawa um, as part of a big grant that the AFP Foundation got around diversity and inclusion. We did a full-day session uh, called Next Gen Philanthropy. And, mm-hmm. and that came out during, during that conference. Um, it came out 
that, you know, younger people, those, you know, probably 40 and under, uh, just getting a piece of mail is a bit of a novelty. I'm like, yeah. you know, older folks. Um, <laughs> they, and the way, the way they put it was, it's, it's like getting a letter at camp. It's so exciting. Uh, and we'll actually open it and read it. So, you know, that was a, that was um, a bit of a light bulb moment for me, I know. Yeah. What are, uh, Ron, Marissa, do you have any thoughts on that? Obviously, Larissa, you brought up the Canada Post piece, so it Yeah, I think um, uh, what comes to my mind um, as someone who's old enough to have done uh, direct mail in the past is the uh, investment and the risk um, with um, communication like that uh, is quite high. And um, uh, some organizations might spend a million dollars sending out uh, a direct mail piece. And um, so if you're going to experiment with increased frequency, of course you can do it with a a smaller segment of your list, but uh, still quite high. Whereas with social media, the thing I love about it, and uh, when I was talking about high-frequency communications, I was referring to social media primarily, is uh, whether you do uh, one post on Facebook per day or 12 posts on Facebook per day, the cost is the same. And um, the uh, risk is relatively low because um, you may lose some people if you're posting too frequently, um, but um, not nearly the same as it is with um, uh, direct mail. or um, other forms of communication that have a high in, upfront investment to uh, produce. So I think we're going to have to do an entire podcast on like the 17 other topics we talked about today, um, which is awesome, which is exactly where we always end up with this podcast. So I, um, I'm mindful of, of people's time and I want to make sure that we're, we're thoughtful about that. I, 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 you know, the question at the beginning of this is, is, uh, you know, is the device our new campfire? And, and the answer is yes and no, um, is what I heard. I, I, I heard that all of the, the things that we've used to communicate, the spoken word, the written word, you know, digital, uh, video, uh, uh, all of those things and more are all as important today, but we need to be more mindful about how we use them all and what's the sauce look like. That's what I heard. Did anyone else want to capture it in a different way? Um, I wouldn't mind coming back to the question of ADHD. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 it only lasted a moment in my mind, and then I can't remember what we were talking about. But please bring it back. Well, there's a related concept in education that's been studied a lot. Um, that's typically called cognitive load. And sometimes cognitive load is confused with ADHD. And cognitive load refers to um, an overloaded short-term memory that prevents information from being transferred to long-term memory. And cognitive load will usually occur because you're using um, too many types of media at once. Uh, so... Uh, in other words, you're using pictures and audio and music and uh, perhaps um, outside distractions and, and other things. And um, so I think that, um, uh, as I said, sometimes that's confused with ADHD uh, and people are at uh, not paying attention to things because it's too difficult for them to process. They're getting too much at once. And, um, and they're, it's not making an impact because it's not going into long-term memory. And so I think, um, messaging, whatever the media has to take that into account. That, right. um, uh, if something's flashy, multimedia, it may catch your attention, but it will also lose your attention very quickly. Whereas something that is um, a couple of media, like written word and a still photo or spoken word and um, a video or 
those kinds of things that work together um, will likely have more of an impact because you're decreasing the cognitive load. Right. Well, that's not just in marketing. I mean, in the military, they've been exploring this for a long time within the cockpit because uh, they've had lot, they had a series of, of higher frequency um, uh, plane crashes in the military because the technology allowed for, you know, the, the, the physical feedback, the audible feedback, the visual feedback, and, and, uh, and, and all kinds of things going on, and it overloaded the, the, the pilot uh, to, 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 to their detriment. So I guess the feedback I'm hearing from you, Ron, is don't overload the cockpit. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, good analogy. Perfect. Um, so I, 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 uh, I, I want to thank each of you. For, for taking time to join us today. And I also want to turn the, the floor over to each of you in a minute. So, so you know, Leah, Larissa, Ron, it's been an amazing conversation. And I saw, I wrote down lots of things that could be topics in the future. I, uh, I hope uh, that you will all consider being back on the podcast. Uh, I hope it was a lovely experience. It was for me. But before we go, I just want to get, uh, turn, turn the podium over to uh, the virtual podium over to each of you and, uh, and give you a moment to talk about whatever you like, whatever you want the audience to hear or remember or think about. So we're going to start with you, uh, Larissa. Anything you want our listening audience to to remember or underline or, or what you're working on or what's important? Um, thanks. This has been a really great opportunity. I think it's such a broad topic that does have many different branches. So, um, you know, I think it, it's been a really interesting conversation for me and, and great experience. Um, you know, for my, you know, two minutes on a, a platform, I just want to encourage everyone to think about their um, professional development. And the reason I bring this up is because I think, you know, we can get very, we're creatures of habit. We can get stuck in our in our ways. And I encourage everyone to think about how can you unstick yourself and do something that is uncomfortable or something that is um, different. And I, I guess I'm, you know, thinking back to my Southeast Asia experience, um, or right now, I'm also doing um, some courses on change management because I think it's interesting to think about how that might, um, you know, influence the work we do in fundraising. So I just encourage everyone to, you know, actively and consciously think about how can you do things differently because we are creatures of habit, and I think that um, that allows us to grow and, um, and you know, become better professionally and personally. That's awesome. Thanks, Larissa. Ron. What do you want to talk about? Uh, you know, where where can we get the best tree fort designs? No, I'm just kidding. What do you want us to know? Uh, well, I uh, thinking about my tree fort. <laughs> the um, it, it was built without a design, um, partly because you're working in a tree, and, <laughs> and and so you're trying to incorporate something structural within something organic, and so. Uh, kind of built it as we went along and um, I hadn't really thought about it before but that's maybe a good analogy for uh, storytelling and um, broadcast media of different kinds in that um, or sharing media I guess would be a better term than broadcast media in that uh, you can't over design, uh, you're always, uh, imposing some structure on something that's organic. And, uh, you have to be aware of, of the two and the interplay between the two and, and let the organic happen, uh, while you're building on it. And so I'm going to quit talking so I don't overwork the metaphor. Um, but, um, that, uh, that just came to mind when you referred back to my, my tree fort. Well, that's great. I love that comment about sometimes we can over-design stuff. Leah, thank you for coming. I want you to have a moment to tell people uh, what you're up to, what you care about, what you want them to remember, and where they can reach you. Uh, so, you know, I think it's important that, uh, sure. that people be able to access your expertise in storytelling. So, Leah, tell us what's going on. Yeah, well, you know, storytelling is my life, pretty much. Um, and both through this conversation and my everyday work, I think, Something I think about a lot is is the fact that you know logically we know a lot of this stuff and we know storytelling best practices, but um, for whatever reason we're not we're not doing it well. We're still not doing it well. Um, so my mission in life is to kind of change that, and and partly it's by um, 
sharing, all of us sharing with each other examples of really great storytelling. Because once we see it, we go, aha, right, we're not doing that. Um, and, you know, I, I particularly love spending time on storytelling in cases for support and um, that whole idea of walking hand in hand, uh, both copy and visual together in the development of any kind of story is, is just, it's so important. It's what, it's what I love to do. And, um, if anyone's looking for some examples of really great, especially cases for support, um, there's a really good resources, resource in, uh, the casewriters.com website, uh, that brings together a bunch of really great case writers, Tom Ahern and some others. And lots of really good examples there of, of cases that have been developed with the visual in mind. Um, really powerful, good examples. And I think the more we look at and read those great examples of storytelling and share them with each other, um, the better, the better we'll all be with our storytelling. And, and people can reach me through that website too. Right. And what's, what's the actual website address? It's the case writers. Dot com. So it's thecasewriters.com? That's it. The yep. word the in it? Okay, we'll put a link yep. in the show notes. Thank you for that, yep. Leah. Really, really appreciate that. And, and thank you for all the work that you do for the profession. So uh, so you. very grateful. I, um, I, I, I'm just going to – I don't normally put anything out there at the end of this, but I will this time because this podcast uh, will come out on the 14th, which is uh, – and it's being recorded – on the 31st of May, but it'll come out on the 14th of June, um, or in around there. And that is three days before Father's Day. And, uh, I remember a few episodes back, uh, our, it was coming out just before Mother's Day. And I think, uh, Beth Ann Locke, uh, may have been the person that might have been Kathy Mann. I couldn't remember. Um, they made a comment about how Mother's Day was coming up and they were encouraging everyone to obviously celebrate their mothers, but also in honor of their mothers or, 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 or to, to celebrate their mothers to make a gift to a women's charity. And, uh, I really liked that call out and, and I'm going to counterpoint that with it being close to Father's Day that you think about doing a similar thing for a charity uh, that might have more of a focus on men. And that's not because they don't, uh, uh, they don't already get a lot of support, but I think it's nice to highlight that around Father's Day. I don't, uh, my, my biological father passed away a long time ago. Um, and so I think about that all the time. I'm very grateful to my stepfather and all the people who are fathers in my life, but I just wanted to highlight that. And so I hope people are okay with that. So with that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by betrayal has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us next month when our topic will be, where does sponsorship fit in the nonprofit sector? Is it underused or overplayed? Joining us will be Brent Brudis with the Partnership Group, Dale Boniface with Spectrum Marketing, and Rachel Hutchison with BlackBot. Talk to you then. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website, at betrayalgroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.